0: Turn with me to Mark chapter 14 as we continue our study in the book of Mark. We'll be looking at verses 43 through 52 today. I thought about going through the rest of the chapter, but it was just too much. So we're going to just look at these 10 verses here. Before we do so, let's go again to the Lord in prayer and ask for help as we open His Word. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our Lord Jesus, as we again open Your Word this morning to learn from it, we pray that You would be here with us to help us because we are easily pulled astray by the words of the world, by the cares, the pleasures of this world. We are easily distracted into thinking that your word is only part of the truth that we need and that we somehow need to fill in the blanks lord help us to see that your word is what we need is all we need and help us to be made wise from it to be convicted of our sin from it that you would lead us to the truth that we might bring you glory it's in your name we pray Amen. So as I read this passage this week, it made me think of this idea of desertion. And particularly thinking about this act in military. If you watch military movies, desertion is one of the themes and they deal with desertion in certain ways. But in reality, desertion tends to be dealt with in lots of different ways. And so I started reading about the way that different countries at different time periods dealt with this. And desertion is this intentional walking away from one's duty with the intent not to return. And so, different countries have dealt with this in different ways. If you think about, it, if you watch the movies, usually in the movies they only deal with it one way—they they they shoot the person. But that's not always what happens. In Russia, in World War II, that's pretty much what happened. Uh, Stalin released this order, and it's famous now. It's called Order 270, basically, which he stated that any deserter should be shot on site, where they stood. And they even positioned a perimeter around battles of other soldiers, and their whole job was to shoot the deserters as they ran away from the battle. 150,000 deserters, Russian deserters, died in World War II, which is kind of crazy. Only In America, only one deserter has died since the Civil War, and his name is Eddie Slovak, which I thought his story was fascinating. You should read it. But he has that distinction because he just decided he didn't want to fight anymore and he was killed in France during World War II. But the more I read about them, the more I realized that no matter what the war or the cause or the desertion comes from the same place, and that place is fear. I've never been in a firefight or a war. I don't ever want to be, so I don't know that kind of fear, but we all do understand fear in some sense. Fear comes from an uncertainty something upsets our norm in some way enough for us to have this panic that is in the blank in the brain it's actually a physiological response it manifests itself in our bodies causes us to stop using our heads and to start using our instincts only and it kind of ends all rational thought in our text today we're going to come face to face with this kind of thing as jesus is arrested In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is arrested, and as he predicted, his band of disciples all desert him, every one of them. One of them deserts him by directly betraying him. The others just run away. In the end, he is left alone to face the religious authorities and the Roman army. So as we work through this today, we have to come face to face with our own tendencies toward this thing. The reason why we have feared. We also have to come face to face with Jesus, thankfully, who always leaves the ninety-nine to find the one, for which we are all thankful. He is a friend of the deserter. If not, we would not, none of us would be here this morning. So, as we consider this passage, let us look at it from three perspectives: Jesus is feared by the world, Jesus betrayed by his enemies, and then finally, Jesus deserted. By his friends. With that, let's look together at the text. Mark chapter 14, starting at verse 43. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Mark 14, starting at verse 43. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So real quick, just for some context, where we are. Remember last week we looked at Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane and how he was distressed and troubled and the fullness of the emotions that he was experiencing and how he was feeling, and yet he prayed for the Father's will to be done even in the midst of that. All the while, over here in the corner, his friends were sleeping, and though they should have been prayerfully preparing for this moment that may have you know helped them deal with it in a better way, instead they were sleeping because it was late. It wasn't any secret that this was getting ready to happen either. Remember that. We've been building up. Jesus has not just kept this from them. He alluded to this all throughout his ministry. They knew that they were going into Jerusalem during Passover week for him to die. They knew that was going to happen. They just shared the Passover together. And he told them, one of of you is going to betray me outright. And the rest of you are going to leave me. This is all going to happen. And now they go into the garden. Jesus tells them, be ready, be awake. And then they go to sleep. And they only awake when the sound of an army is approaching. So imagine you're one of those people sleeping and you wake up and there's an army there with clubs and swords and torches. Panic would set in. This fear would set in. They weren't prepared at all for what was about to happen. I think at this point they were probably convinced that maybe it wasn't going to happen you know like we all would be if we were hearing that sort of distressing news so many times i think we find ourselves in this same place so as we walk through this passage again consider yourself look at your own heart as we should do every week and as jesus is there for his people He is here still with us today and so this brings us to the first point jesus feared by the world look with me again at verse 43 <clears throat> And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. So this would have been an impressive sight. In John's gospel, we are told that Judas not only brought this chief priest and their whole crowd with him, but he also brought with them a band of Roman soldiers. And the word band there is actually the word cohort, and a cohort would have been about 600 soldiers. Or so all armed and armored they weren't quiet when they were walking through the garden that night swords in hands priests and the scribes would have had armed guards as well except they had clubs a little less impressive than the roman guard that was coming in but just just imagine what's going on jesus is here he's praying his 11 disciples are there his disciples are fishermen and tax collectors They're not trained people by any means, except for in their professions, of course. And they are being set upon now by 600 Roman soldiers who were absolutely trained. They had conquered the known world, as well as this unknown host of armed Jewish folk kind of rounding out the troop. And they were all there with the purpose for arresting one man. So why do you think Judas went and found a Roman cohort when he went to arrest Jesus. He'd been with Jesus for three years, right? Don't forget, he watched Jesus raise people from the dead. He watched Jesus cast demons out of a man and send them into the pigs, and the pigs then over the cliff. He watched Jesus uh, give sight to the blind to make the deaf to hear, make the lame to walk. He saw all these things. He knew that Jesus was not a man to be trifled with. Were it any other man, they would have just arrested him in the daylight, in the open air, as he was teaching. Jesus even alludes to this, 49 and 48, right? He says, you had all this time to arrest me. Why didn't you do it? Why did you wait till now? He knew that his people loved him, that they would defend him. They were afraid, most of all, that he might even defend himself. And he could have. We know that. He could have called down legions of angels to dispatch this mob, but he didn't. He went willingly. This reaction to Christ wasn't unique to this night in the garden at all. It's not unique to this time in history either. In fact, Christ has always, will always be this intimidating factor. One of my favorite passages in seeing this is in joshua chapter 5 turn with me real quick to joshua chapter 5 and the purpose for this is because i want us to see the difference between how the man of god responds to the lord and how then the people this rabble responds to him joshua chapter 5 verses 13 through 15. Now Joshua's fighting battles, and he comes to this place where he meets someone, and this, this someone is a preincarnate version of our Lord Jesus. And so verse 13 says, When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No. Which is an interesting question, or an interesting answer to either or. But he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. Look at Joshua's response. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet, for this place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua Did so. Can you imagine seeing this guy and then Joshua in the midst of battle and in the midst of dealing with different kings and armies saying, hey, are you a force or against us? And he just says no. That's pretty incredible. But notice his response. He knew his Lord when he saw him, when he heard him. He knows that whether or not God is on my side is inconsequential. I need to be on God's side. And Joshua chose to be on the right side. And notice the reaction of the world back in Mark chapter 14. It's the complete opposite, right? They're not going, they're not coming to bow at the feet of Jesus. They're bringing an army to topple him as if they could. This is important for us because this kind of intimidation takes various forms. The obvious being the world's constant attack on the church over the centuries. Just read history at all. The church has always been persecuted in one part of the world or another and they're persecuted simply for existing just for worshiping god it's because they worship the one true god the world doesn't want to bow at that god's feet so they destroy his followers thinking that will somehow make him just go away however this intimidation is a lot less obvious for people who decide well maybe jesus is just a bit much Maybe the, the Christian life is really more about having the appearance and a doctrine that is pleasing to the world. That Jesus by himself is a little bit too intimidating. And so we need to make our faith attractive, and the only way to do that, to the unbeliever. Because we want to make it attractive to the unbeliever, and we need to take Jesus out of it. Jesus is offensive. Because as loving and wonderful and good as he is to us, his followers, he is a rock of offense to the unbeliever. The only hope is repentance. But instead, what do they bring? They bring swords and clubs. We have to be careful, church, because in our desire to see them put down their weapons, we might be in danger of putting off Christ as well. And succumbing to the fear that we see present in this passage today. We have to be careful. We have to be diligent in presenting Christ. And that brings us to the next point. Jesus betrayed by his enemies. Look with me again at verse 44 and 45. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. Judas is still afraid, I believe. And when he came, he went up to him at, at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Remember, Judas had made an arrangement a while back there, beginning of chapter 14. He made an arrangement to betray Jesus, and these plans are now coming to fruition. He knew that Jesus was going to be here. This was a common place that Jesus brought his disciples. He had just eaten the Passover with them, and so he knew kind of what was going on, and here they are. So you can imagine this scene. He sets it up so that he will give Jesus a kiss. They will know that it's him. It's probably really dark outside. We take for granted, you know, in our days of electricity and street lights, but it was probably dark. Jesus would have appeared as the average Jewish male standing there amongst other average Jewish males. But to Judas, who had knew him and walked with him for three years, he would have been familiar. And so he walks up to him and he kisses him just as if it's any other day and calls him rabbi. And then he's arrested. Jesus. Judas stands as a thorn in the side for many Christians. Because we want things to have this nice, neat appearance. And everything to end at the end of the story. Whether it's bad or good. We just want to be able to understand everything fully. We want the enemies of God to be plain, We want the friends of God to be plain so that everything in our life is easier to understand. If Judas had been an enemy from the very beginning, this whole thing would be so much easier for us. If Judas had been a bad guy in Mark chapter 1, we'd have thought, okay, this is obvious what's supposed to happen. But that's not the case. We don't have a problem with the Pharisees, right? Because they've been bad guys since the beginning. They've never been on team Jesus, We don't have a problem with Rome at all here. They've always been this big, bad, evil presence, right, in the background. But when someone who is called a disciple turns, it's hard because it doesn't fit our normal categories of the way we want to understand things. And so we try to pass this off by saying things. Well, Judas was a believer for a time, and then he wasn't a believer for a time. The problem with that is that we know, because the rest of the scripture is really plain, that true believers persevere to the end, that God has a people for himself. He keeps those people for himself. Judas obviously wasn't his people. Others maybe say, well, he'll be forgiven in the end. But remember, when he had the Passover with him, what did Jesus say concerning the one who would betray the Son of Man? It would have been better had he not even been born. So then how do we... Deal with Judas. We dealt with some of this actually in Sunday school today as we looked at Romans chapter 9 and we dealt with this idea of the sovereignty of God versus the will of man and these conversations, those kinds of conversations are really only fruitful if we can accept the fact that man is fallen, deserves the wrath of God 100%. Fallen man cannot do what is right in the eyes of God and cannot please God. In fact, sees themselves as wise. And right in his own eyes. Even though Judas walked with the Lord. He was never with the Lord. And while he initially was attracted to the Lord. He fell into temptation over and over. And the gospel writers try to help us with this early on in the story right. That Judas was the treasurer and he stole from From the group and he kind of started off this way and he was really concerned about money and financial things all the time. And so it's no trick to us that he betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. This stands as a warning to us for those of us who are in Christ because for Judas it became easier to betray Christ. Understand this. It became easier to betray Christ than it was for him to go and confess his sin and be forgiven. He never sought forgiveness once. He did the deed. He had some sorrow. He tried to get rid of his money and was still unable to shake that sorrow. And he committed suicide. He heard Jesus talk about forgiveness over and over again. He heard him say that those who are heavy laden should come to me and find rest. Judas was heavy laden for sure. Turn with me to to Matthew chapter 27. Let's look at this feeling that Judas was was experiencing here. Matthew 27, 3 through 5. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind, and he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and to the elder, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver in the temple, he departed, and he went, and he hanged himself. That is a man who is heavy laden. He just was ringing in his ears still that what Jesus said, it would have been better for him to not even have been born. Can you imagine the the weight that he's feeling? And then rather go, rather than go to Jesus, he looked inside. And what did he find inside? Nothing but darkness. He went to the priests even to try to find some absolution for his crime and they didn't want anything to do with him because there's no forgiveness in going to priests. They needed forgiveness too. Only one could stand for the sins that Judas committed, yet Judas chose death instead. And now he'll know death for all eternity. We all know people in our lives that have walked with Jesus and they're no longer walking with him now. And we may be tempted to say, well, I believe they're still Christians. It might even be tempted to say, well, they were Christians and now they're not. And it's easy for us to get into discussions like that. And those discussions are actually helpful and they're good. But rather than do that, look inside. Look at yourself. Examine your own heart in this. Because this warning is not here for us to feel guilty To have doubts to create those things even because those aren't the things that believers should have. We shouldn't have this guilty feeling. I wonder if that's like, if that's me. We shouldn't have doubts. Well, I don't know if if God can even save me. Rather than have those things, what should we do? What did Jesus say? Again, let me remind you. All those who are heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest for your soul. Do you do that? Or when you're heavy laden, do you search for other things that you might find rest? The world will definitely offer you various forms of rest. Obviously, money, importance, acceptance, recreation, pleasure. But there's rest in none of those things. And you've heard me say this many times. Those gods don't give you rest. In fact, they only demand more from you. Oh, I just need a little bit more. And then, then you'll get to experience the rest that I have. They lie to you. Judas loved his money, but in the end he threw his money on the ground, and the priests used it, and they bought a field, and they called it the field of blood. Imagine that being your legacy. Rather than betray Jesus little by little until it becomes easy, call upon him. Find forgiveness, find rest. And if you're here and you're not a believer this morning, you're hearing this and you feel heavy. I have news for you. It's the same news. Call upon him and be saved. You can't possibly be outside of his reach because the Bible tells us that his reach is as far as as the east is from the west. I know that because that's how far he says he'll remove your sins from you if you call upon him for forgiveness. And then lastly... Jesus is deserted by his friends. And so then the question for us is, do, do believers desert Jesus? When we do desert Jesus, should we be put to death like Eddie Slovak or like the thousands of Russian defectors in World War II? What about when the world is in, intimidated, the world being intimidated by Christ is, is pressing in around us like we see here with the disciples? The pressures on believers in this country right now is mounting as the teachings of the Bible are being left behind for the pleasures of men. And increasingly, we aren't allowed to just simply believe different. I have my beliefs, you have yours. Isn't that what makes America great? No, that's not what's happening more and more, but instead people are losing their jobs, their reputations. It's becoming tough. It's becoming easy. For us to simply play the part, the part that they want us to play, and to leave Jesus alone. Look with me at verses 50 through 52 again. All this is happening around them. Judas comes up and kisses him, and they arrest him. And they all left him and fled, just like Jesus said they would. And then there's this other young man, and a young man followed him. You can almost kind of see him. He's following through the forest or through the garden nothing but a linen cloth about his body and they seized him but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked they went to arrest him this man this, this this other man they apparently they grabbed his clothes and he only had one piece of clothing on apparently because he left his clothes behind in order to flee the scene interesting little addition here in the book there's a lot of conjecture over the years as who this could have been some think that some think that it's blind bartimaeus remember we talked about him he threw off his cloak when he met jesus the first time right and this was the only piece of clothes that he had left and he threw it off too when he was about to be arrested some think that it could be mark that mark didn't want to name himself and so this could be mark that he you know he had this linen cloth linen wasn't necessarily the cheapest thing and so only wealthy People may have had it, and they think Mark probably was the, the son of wealthy people, and this may have been Mark. All conjecture doesn't really matter. It could have been anyone. In fact, it might have even been one of us if we'd been there that night. And over the years, Christians have fled for their lives. They have worshipped at the altar of Caesar in order to save their own lives. They have denounced Christ in order to save their families and their livelihoods. They've decided against preaching Christ in order to be relevant in a Christless society. They've given in to sin in order to satiate the desire of the flesh, in order to fit in. They've exchanged honesty for deceit in order to make a few extra dollars. Whether they've deserted Christ to save their own lives or they've deserted Christ in order to run to the open arms of pleasure, they've left their Savior. And in the garden that night, it had to be that way. Jesus' cross was just for him. And he was the only one who could possibly bear it. And he bore it for a people that he knew would desert him over and over again. Over and over. He died taking their sins upon himself. For their sins of desertion, he, Jesus, the Son of God, was deserted by his own Father. And in exchange for their sins, he gave them his own precious righteousness. So that they could have forgiveness. You and I, who deserted him, could have forgiveness. So in conclusion, the life that we live on this earth is hard, and it's not getting easier. I wish that were the case. Not only do we have to contend with our own sin and our own temptation, these things that live within us no matter where we live or what sort of conditions that we live in, but we also have to contend with a world that is bringing swords and clubs against the Son of Man. Remember, they only hate Christians because they hate Christ. They hate him because he's God. And if he's God, then what do we, his followers, have to fear? If the one who says, you are mine, calls us his children, then what do we have to fear, brothers and sisters in Christ? To that end, let us be bold with our confession. Let us not be afraid of the world. In those times when we would flee naked at the first sign of temptation or difficulty, let us run back to his open arms and find rest. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, we are so quick to run away at the first sign of the least bit of difficulty. But we are thankful That you went right to the cross. You didn't flinch. You went right there for me. For us, your people. So Lord, we pray that you would help us. We want to be bold in our confession. We want to be true in our allegiance to you. The one who gives us life. The one who will give us life for all eternity. So, Lord, we pray that you would help us, not so that we can be seen as some bold champions, but so that you can be seen as Savior, that you might be glorified, that the world would know that you alone are God. And we pray this in your name. Amen.